You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Hey, uh, whether you get, like, understand what we uh, what we were just talking about with emotional um, build, oh, what's it called emotional brain therapy. Whether that's the way you want to go, you, at some point, you need to focus on your emotions. I'm a big believer that all issues, all relationship issues, all life issues, really, are emotional management issues. Life is great when you're feeling great, right? Is life great when you feel horrible? No. It's the emotion that makes it great or not. Well, no, it's really what's going on. But you've probably had situations where you were at a higher state emotionally, a healthier state emotionally, and still going through difficult stuff. The difficult stuff in life will not go away. Your ability to manage the emotion, it's important. And we just manifested that with uh, Dr. Laurel Mellon. Going through those questions really are pretty powerful, simply because do you notice it makes you almost find your shame. It almost makes you, it made me look at my guilt. It made me dig deeper into what I am doing and what I'm not doing with my own life. Those thoughts that she was processing me through create a lot of my emotional stress. So the the greatest value of what I think I just saw with uh, Dr. Mellon's work is that it gives me – I took a space, and in that space, I went and started to make change. When we make change and we make space and we focus on our emotions and our feelings, something's going to change. Something's going to happen, and uh, the problem is most of us don't ever make the time to do that. So make sure you take time to look at your emotions. You are not your emotion. If you're mad, you're not mad. You're still yourself. You got to go put your madness in space, right? Do something about it. A little coach's corner for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We got, you, you got these beautiful little kids. You know, you put them in their football gear for the first time, their helmet spins around their little head. They feel like a superstar. They've got the armbands, the sweatbands, even though they really won't sweat because they're hardly going to run. And yet, you the entire time, are you thinking about them being an NFL quarterback? Right? You've got these dreams that he's going to be like dad. He's going to throw the game-winning pass. And then you see him line up. The coaches line your boy up next to everyone else. And just to have a little, you know, a little workout. Everybody run to the fence. And as they all run to the fence, you notice your boy doesn't run as fast as the others. Even the heavy linemen are outrunning your boy. You feel this anger start to just a little, just a little fire brewing deep in your head. What is he doing? Run, boy! Run! You start pushing your kid. He's never going to be a quarterback if he can't outrun the line. Day one. And I've seen it with all of my kids. Oh, man, we raised some beautiful boys that love sports. We got involved in the football league. It was so wonderful. Year after year, spending $500 plus a year to play football. 
Now I'm down to three boys that could play, and uh, my wife so diligently dedicated some time, has given time to be on the committee for the football league this year. She's volunteering her time to the football league, and my 11-year-old and 13-year-old boys don't want to play anymore. They want to play lacrosse and tennis. Ah, come on. No, I really don't like it, Dad. Ah, sure you do. Ah, Don't really like it. No, come on. At what point do you dig deep into the hearts of your children and let them be them? As a parent, it's a hard thing because sometimes you think they don't know what's right. I mean, this was the same kid that was trying to microwave the metal bowl. So if you don't know how to what to microwave, son, maybe you don't know what sport you want to play this year. What do you do? You watch the Olympics. You dream of your son being at the Olympics or whatever, or being the best piano player, or being the best, uh, you know, being elected in an office at school. How on earth do you get to the point where you can just love them for who they are? I think in the end, um, this is always going to be more about you than it will be them. When you just look at the odds of them going pro, it's not, those aren't great odds. But the principles they can learn in these sports, the principles they can learn about themselves, it's a powerful thing. So will you just look at how you are watching the Olympics? Look at how you're talking about the Olympics with your kids. See if it's all about competition. See if it's about trying. Are you putting an undue stress on your child? Are you being real clear, really clear with them on what you really want out of sports? If it's not, if it's not that they have to be the best athlete, what is it that you want them to become? Are your children clear of that? If they're not clear, guess what? Then the value of sports, it's probably not being learned. Uh, we had a friend whose father very much wanted them to be a top athlete and uh, most talented kid I've ever seen playing a sport that uh, my son was on his team and he was just incredible. And his junior year when he was right about to just blossom, all the scouts were coming to see him. He quit. He's done. Doesn't want to do it anymore. It's not fun anymore. And really what I think it was was the voice of a teenage boy coming out, controlling something he could control, and uh, basically pushing back on his father. So watch out what, what you're creating and in their lives. Don't always just move to the medals list. Make sure you're learning the backstories, especially the backstories in the second you know, round uh, group that, that didn't make it to the finals. There's some amazing stories of people and the principles, talk principles. And I think th- then you're creating something powerful, folks. Man, the kids, they're very, they're very willing to learn and open to, uh, to, to have opportunity from the parents. So You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. As a parent, you, you're trying to truly change your children uh, long-term. Always think long-term as we're talking about these issues with Heather. The problem is um, you want them to have the skills and the tools to be able to do this long-term. 
And in the end, if we're not setting up the long-term game for them, we're hindering them. Sometimes the easy, fast answers haven't fixed anything. They, in fact, have just made a few things worse. Some other tools I always suggest uh, when we're trying to talk uh, about any problem-solving issue with, with another person, make sure that you you push your kids and anybody to spend more time trying to understand the issue. One, thank you. One of the things I found is that we don't know the issues well enough. And so when a politician can throw something out there and nobody questions it, the media might question it. They might even give it five Pinocchios or whatever. But in the end, um, most of the, the, the voters don't have a clue that they're full of it. They don't have a clue about what's going on because they haven't studied these issues out. A lot of people are so partisan and they just vote down the party line that they're not actually informed about what's going on. What really is happening with jobs, right? When the, when the um, Obama administration tells you that they put 20 million people on, um, you know, on health care that weren't on it before, that just sounds like a great number, right? It's awesome. And what's happening to the other 80% of people that were on health care? What's happened to theirs? Do you know? Because it's more than just one issue. There's 10 issues going on here. Has costs gone up for people? I mean, you hear that thrown around. Is that true? Is that an actual fact? So anyway, broaden your own pool of understanding. Make sure just as a listener or as a voter yourself that you avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or even sensitive. Thank you. We have so many people that are just so sensitive to what others are saying that uh, it starts fights. It starts – I listened to a out, you know, all these outtakes that came from the Trump camp, all the outtakes that came from um, some of the Clinton camps. And you're sitting there thinking, are these adults presenting you know, political arguments or are they just highly sensitive people freaking out on each other? Another rule about, I think, politics in general, you don't need to pile on. Ben loves a good pile on. Um, You don't need to pile on to somebody. A lot of times when people make mistakes or say something stupid, it's obvious. To pile on only makes you look like a bully. And again, that's what I want to teach my kids because when they're having an issue in their world, I don't want my child to be the one jumping on the one that's already down. Make sense? That's why uh, Heather's advice on working on the principles and the values are so much more important than positions. Positions are going to change. Principles and values, they're eternal. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, you're seeing it play out in the news with uh, Donald Trump. I think even Hillary Clinton, this whole idea of emotional intelligence, to be a leader, you have to be able to manage your emotion. You have to be able to recognize your own emotions uh, and manage them so that, that your emotional outbursts, your emotional, your fears, your concerns aren't leading you. You also have to have the ability to recognize the emotions of others and know how to lower those emotions, not make them worse. And finally, I've got to find a way to enroll people into my emotion. It's called emotional intelligence. And as we see people that aren't trusting two of our political leaders, um, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, it might simply be part of the reason we don't trust. We trust people that we believe have emotional intelligence, that they're not going to fly off the handle. I think of it as like a Coke bottle. If I shake a Coke bottle um, or, by, by the way, Diet Pepsi, whatever have you, 
uh, if I shake it and create a, I'll create a reaction. But if I hand you the bottle and you know I just shook it, you're not going to want to open it. You're not going to trust the explosion that's going to take place. So if you're out there and you feel like people don't listen to you, they don't necessarily trust you, they stay away from you at certain times, it might be that they're sensing that you aren't safe. You're not a safe person because you can't control how you respond in certain in certain cases. Perhaps Hillary Clinton um, went and hid emails because she's it, she it created fear. It she's been in the spotlight forever. The media has been harsh on Hillary Clinton, and she found it easier to just you know try to control it all on her own. Nonetheless, people don't trust her because of that. Donald Trump ends up saying whatever he feels, and if you make a, make fun of him or jab him, he reacts and crushes you, thinking that that's a manly move. The problem is, deep down, we don't trust people that aren't predictable and safe. And it's not something that you can just intellectualize. There's a gut reaction that people have to, to unsafe people. And it goes back to the days that we had to live, you know, as a tribe— and if somebody was a loose cannon in the tribe, by the way, more likely to create problems, more likely to end up dying, and more likely to being kicked out of the tribe. So emotionally intelligent people, it's a huge advantage. It is something we should be teaching our kids. But don't just pass it down to the kids. First, look at yourself. Do people trust you and your ability to manage emotion? And it might be a good thing, too, that you look at your political candidates do they possess emotional intelligence? And and is that one of the reasons why you trust them or you don't trust them? It's not going away, folks. It's part of who we are, and it's actually a huge driver of success. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you ever asked your child to do something, and when they they ask why, you end up responding, because I said so. That approach will work for some children, but parents with strong-willed children know that answer won't cut it. Here to discuss how to help deal with the challenges of raising strong-willed children is life coach and author Rini Jane. Uh, Rini, we welcome you to the show. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Matt. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Excited to talk about strong-willed children. I mean, you want your kids to be strong-willed, right? Until they exercise strong will against you. (laughs) Then it must be stopped. Exactly. You know, from a parent's perspective, we have a life experience, right? So why are you not listening to me? We know what we're doing. We're the parent. We've been through it. (laughs) And what's funny, what makes it even worse is when you see that their strong will parallels kind of your traits or your character, and you're like, they're just like me. Now how am I going to fix this? They use those exact words that you use. They just turn it around. (laughs) Yeah. When you say them, it's okay, right? 
So talk to us about this. When I get into it, I mean, I, yeah, I want my kids to, to you know, do what I say and, and follow my will. Um, what, what do we do? How do we not crush their spirit and yet help them get through life and not be, you know, not offend everybody? I think that's such a tremendous, insightful, important question, especially when you say crush their spirit. So I think the first step is to remember that they're not trying to crush our spirit. We take it so incredibly personally, right, that mm-hmm. it becomes a matter of disrespect for us when we think they're not listening to what we're saying, right? So I work with a lot of parents who say, my child just doesn't listen. And, you know, um, the musician Pink actually said something so profound she said something like, my mom took all my behavior personally, and everything I did, she thought, was an act of rebellion, but it was just me being me. Huh. So I think the first step, really, is to remember that these are trial and error children, right? Yeah. They don't necessarily learn through words. They're very experiential. And I think we get, when they're really young, we get super caught up with safety and hazards, of course, and that's understandable, right? You don't want your child to get burned or to fall from, you know, in the park, fall from the jungle gym, whatever. So we get very scared, and then we start, (laughs) what we do is we we say it once, and they don't listen. Then we say it again louder, like the volume has an effect. Right. Then we change our tone a little bit and get a little angrier and start growling. I think first, what we need to do is take a step back and say, this isn't about me. It's about them experiencing, right, and learning from natural consequences. So that's always that's always, it sounds simple. It's not simple, right? Yeah, to say, right? It's not about me. It's about them learning. So once we get into that space, then we, our tone changes, our body language changes. It's not about us growling until they actually stop. Um, and then I, I have myself, I work with a lot of kids, but I also have a two and a three-year-old. So I'm speaking from absolute experience here, Right. I remember my kids are trial and error kids, and then I try not to say no constantly, right? Because, no, don't do this. No, don't do that. No, don't do this. And I actually, years ago, uh, I grew up in Chicago, and there is an improv company there called Second City, which is pretty famous. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, In improv, they do something that um, where improv actors rarely use the word no on stage because no, it stops the scene sort of dead in its track, Hmm. right? Every single time. And they are asked instead to say yes. And right. This is these two words that you're taught. If if you've ever taken an improv class, they say, listen, when you're on scene with someone, when you're on stage with someone, the actor says something, no matter how outrageous it is, you just say yes. And so if I have a strong willed child, if we're dealing with young children, they're jumping on the sofa, they're doing something where we think they're going to break their neck. Right. Right. Instead of saying, no, stop doing that. You know, you will not do that. We can say, yes, I see that you love jumping. I love jumping, too. Why don't we try doing it on the trampoline outside? You know, yeah. yeah. Or they're, they're drawing on the wall. Hey, it's awesome to draw. I love drawing. Yes. And but you know what? It's hurting the wall. So maybe we can make a super duper awesome, huge canvas on this paper. Um, so really in 
there's a little bit of redirection, but there's some empathy there. Do you hear it in the yes? Totally. Like, yes, I, I get while you're doing that. I mean, please don't do it anymore yeah. is what you're thinking, right? Right. I get while you're doing it, why don't we do it another way? It's, um, and that, you know, you know, as you know, this gets tiring, right? Oh, it's yeah. It's exhausting to, be, to kind of creatively think of these things, but it becomes habit. And what I love about the article is you, th- there's a reason this is a blessing to think of them having um, – uh, this isn't just uh, what a, a trait that's going to eventually suck the life out of you till you die. This is a trait that they're going to learn through, and eventually it's going to be a major resource to them later in life. I mean, having a strong will 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 make them leaders. It will make them more uh, more of a force in their own life. It, it's going to it's going to benefit them in the end. So you just you just have to kind of coach them through this power. You have to guide them, and it really is a power, Matt, right? So we're talking about the child now who's not listening to you when you're saying, listen, drink your milk because it's good for you. But when they're at a party and they're, you know, 14 years old and someone's telling telling them to drink something they shouldn't, that is the child that is impervious, not completely, but really to peer pressure because they have a very strong voice inside of them. They have that compass inside of them saying, listen, that's not really what I want to do. It's not what I wanted to do when I was a kid. It's not what I want to do now. That is a strong-willed child, and that is the superpower of strong-willed children. They make amazing entrepreneurs. They um, do, frankly, the research shows that they do financially better. Do they? I think yeah, a lot of times we're worried about their success because we think, wow, this this kid isn't listening. You know, he's not going to respect authority. He's not going to to listen to anyone. How is he going to get along in life? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, what we see is that a lot of people and what a lot of metrics of quote unquote success, they end up being really successful. It's it's always I I have strong willed children. Well, it's interesting. Some of them, I wonder if they have any will. But um, but. <laughs> But what I've noticed is with those that I know do have this strong will, sometimes I wonder if they're not going to crush others with it. Do you know what I mean? Like I worry as a parent like, oh, you've got to moderate that a little bit, child, because it's going – you're going to – you're going to steal the voice of other people because your voice is so strong. I think that's a really important question, you know, especially when they're – I read this really interesting research recently where – it shows that when you are in the presence of someone strong-willed that you either take on a stronger role or you take on a more submissive role, right? Right. And you don't want your child going around being the boss of everyone and, and not opening themselves up to listening. But I don't think that those things are exclusive. I don't think if you're strong-willed means that you don't appreciate others, you can't listen to others, you don't you can't cultivate that skill right. set. I think what it means is that you push boundaries. I think it means you're innovative, frankly, because someone's telling you something like you know, my son does this thing where he twirls as he's in a twirling phase or he, yeah. and he falls down, you know, he gets dizzy and he falls down. So I say to him, Jude, you know, you're going to fall and hit your head on something. And he just looks at me and then he twirls again. Right. <laughs> I'm like, okay. All right. Twirl away. <laughs> you have to learn for yourself, apparently. Right. You're not, you're not listening to uh, what I'm saying, but it's interesting that after, and he's only two, 
after he falls a couple of times, he comes over and he like puts his hand on his head. He says, mommy got hurt. You know, <laughs> like mommy said, got hurt. Right. Even at this young age, he's processing what I said. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they don't absorb it and process it. It's just that they're testing it out and pushing the boundaries a little bit. And I don't think it doesn't mean that they can't listen and won't listen to others. Yeah. Talk about the, the um, you, you listed 11 superpowers of strong-willed children. Do you, and do you, do you suggest, if you, if you kind of diagnose your child as having a strong will, do you suggest you tell them about their superpowers, or does that create just a super monster? Um, do, so do, I mean, because it seems like that's empowering. If you could identify, man, son, you have a really strong will, and, and maybe start sharing with them some of these superpowers that you list in your article, it might actually be emboldening. It might be, you know, it might... Make them stronger, maybe in a good way. Again, Matt, such a great question, right? So we don't want to make their head really big and make them so strong-willed that they're kind of unbearable, right? But I think, I really believe this with any child and really any person, that if you look at them with a deficit focus, these are all the things that are wrong with you. It's easy to right. do with anyone. It's easy to do with a partner. It's easy to do, you know, it's easy to do with anyone. If we really look at what are the qualities that you can work with here, you know, what are the things that are going to be great for you? And we say it overtly, explicitly to them. I think it's extremely empowering, you know, while we're guiding them still. Listen, I think it's amazing that you learn through experience. I love that. I wasn't like that as a child. Whatever my parents said, I was like, okay, right? So you can say, I think it's amazing that you do this. But you know what might be better next time, dot, 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 right? Right. So I think it's it's amazing that sometimes five of your friends um, wanted to dress up like Batman and you wanted to dress up like Robin (laughs) or or whatever, whatever the example is. Hey, that takes guts. That takes courage. That's it's hard to pull off, Robin. You know, that's <laughs> really hard to pull off. That's <laughs> true. It really is. But I think we need to highlight those things for them. I think it can be extremely empowering and then, you know, guide them where they're guides. Yeah. I love that idea. Um, let's actually do this. Let's take a break and then come back and go through the 11 superpowers of a strong-willed child. And, and, and really, I guess that's reframing them as positives instead of negatives that will tear you down as a parent. Uh, these, these are positive things. Stick with us, folks. We're speaking with Rini Jane, 11 superpowers of a strong-willed child. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, if you have a strong-willed child, don't don't be discouraged. It's a gift. It's a blessing. It's a positive thing. According to our guest, Rini Jane, uh, she is walking us through an article she wrote, 11 Superpowers of a Strong-Willed Child. You can find out more about Rini Jane at her website, which is uh, rinijane.com. 
It looks like it's Renee Jane, but they obviously don't know how to say her name. ReneeJane.com is the website. She's a coach, an author, a speaker, and she's helping us understand uh, the emotional learning needed by our children. Renee, thank you so much for being with us. I'm so happy to be here, and I think it's such an important subject. Thank you for having me on. You bet. Talk to us about, you wrote down 11 um, and identified 11 superpowers that come with a strong-willed child. And this is, I guess, how we turn a negative, um, something that we think, you know, might be an obnoxious trait of a strong-willed child, and turn it to a positive. It's a gift or a benefit that down the line can deeply impact their life. Absolutely. And I, having two strong-willed children myself, I really was writing from experience on this one. Yeah. And I feel like let's, you know, let's go through some of these things on the list because they are things that you can hang up on a piece of paper, maybe on your refrigerator. And when you are experiencing one of those moments where you're thinking, why is the child not listening to me? <laughs> Look at the list and think about what is it? What's the blessing? What's the superpower here? Right, right. right. There's, there's something going on. First of the list is that and, – and you're, you're stating these as, uh, I guess, as, again, as things you can put up on the wall so they see that. The first one says you are mentally tough. That's right. They don't give up easily. You know this, right? You yeah, know this if you're totally. a strong-willed child. So they're not going to quit, right? When they can't win, they dig in their heels. They stay focused on their goal no matter what that is, whether it's a cutting up a piece of paper or starting to learn a sport, they, they're tough, right? They don't yeah. give up. That's so, and honestly, that's good. I mean, but then meanwhile, the sport, you know, you want them to, to not give up, but meanwhile at home, when they want to build a fort, they also may not give up. <laughs> they're, they want a fort, mom. They want a fort. Oh, they want a fort. They want a fort. It doesn't matter if you need to leave to dinner. It doesn't matter if you, you know if you have guests coming over and we need to clean the fort up. They want a fort. They're building yeah. the fort. <laughs> it's so true. It's happening whether you want it or not. Another point you bring up is you aren't always spa- or sp- you aren't always swayed by peer pressure. That's right. You know we talk about what are we going to do when our kids get into that space and they're influenced by a friend that might not be such a positive influence. Yeah. We want our children to have a very strong voice inside of them that guides them. These kids are born with a strong voice. And if we can nurture that voice and help guide it, right, then they will maintain it. And so instead of us crushing their spirit and crushing that voice, let's remember that it's going to be a blessing when they're in peer situations. Mm. And, and that would be such a valuable conversation to have with your kid that peer, what peer pressure is, I mean, I think we all do it, but you, you because of your, your trait as a strong-willed child, you aren't going to be swayed. That's, That's get right. that idea in their head that they, they just aren't. They don't have to take the bait. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, what we were talking about earlier, that it's good to listen to others, right? Keep your mind open because we don't want them to be closed-minded. Right. Keep your mind open and listen, but you don't have to be swayed, right? Trust your instinct and your opinion and your inner voice. You suggest that uh, these kids are going to be uh, entrepreneurs. They're going to, I guess, be creative developer creators. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is research-based. So kids who challenge the status quo, right, strong-willed kids who have these particular traits, even rule-breaking and defiance, things that we think of as 
you know, disrespectful and, and think is going to get them in trouble later. Well, a lot of those children end up being our business leaders of the future. Uh, <laughs> or presidents of the United States. <laughs> yeah, we won't. <laughs> yeah, I get you. I get you. <laughs> no, I, we're good, Irini. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it really is. Again, right now they drive us crazy because they question everything. But I guess the research is saying that will enable them to maybe see a different way to create a different product, you know, innovate. Right. I mean, if we just think about it on a really simple level, if everything we, if our child only became everything we taught them and never pushed further, they would just become us. Right. Right. There would be no new people in the world. There would be no new innovation in the world. And so at some level, we want them to test the boundaries. It's so true. We're not. We don't want them to just be like us. Isn't that funny? But but we we parent them as like just quit being different than me. Just be like me. But then in the end, we really want them to really be so much different. Well, we are amazing, Matt. I mean, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. We totally know that. Um, one of the things you mentioned too is this stick to itiveness. Is the get, they'll get back up after they fall and fail. Yeah. I mean, it's it's their failures. Their their slips in life, they're going to be able to kind of reset. They are resilient. So it's interesting because I actually teach this as a skill to children because resilience is a skill. Yeah. But they have a wellspring of resilience within them. You know, yeah, they, they fall down, they get back up, they're trying again. When they decide to, you know, call it a day or, or fold their cards, it's because they did it on their terms. But they're not about to be set back by life circumstance. That's good. I mean, because, again, it's going to be handed to them over and over and over. Uh, Another point you bring up that I think is super important for the kids to know and parents to know is um, the the self, uh, you know, the strong-willed child might have more of a self-starter kicker in them. They're probably more able to self-start. Yeah, it's interesting. So if you're listening to this and you're a parent or you've been around kids who are strong-willed, those are the kids that don't sit, you know, in the corner and necessarily color with their crayons for hours and hours on end. They're always kind of scurrying around doing something. They are self-motivated. They are interested at poking and prodding and, and finding things that interest them. And that engine keeps going. It's a beautiful thing to nurture. Now, while at home, sometimes it feels frantic and hectic and like your child is stressed, mm-hmm. but remember, they're self-motivated. They're self-starters. It's an amazing strength to have. Oh, yeah. And honestly, I, I love the idea that that every one of these things that could start out as such a negative um, can be can be turned and spun into such a positive potential trait. And I think, I think that's the key to everything I'm learning um, in your article is we, we as the parent are the ones that have to show more – we have to show more character, more integrity dealing with these kids because they're, they're pushing us harder. And yet we also – if we do it appropriately, if we, if we do it right, we, we're going to help them frame a, a trait into a really positive tool set. I think that you're hitting the nail on the head here because if we 
familiarize ourselves with all of these strengths, right? When we're in the moment where it feels like a crisis, when we're with our child and they're not listening to us, we can easily reference what we've already learned. And it just makes it so much easier to handle a situation and to treat our children with respect, Hmm. you know, when they're being strong-willed. What do we do, Rini, um, when we, as a parent, maybe question our own will to handle the strong-willed, when our own character, um, our own reactivity in the moment is getting in the way? What are some tools we can do as a parent to maybe take a step back? So this is what I think, right, with parents. It's an imperfect practice, of course, and the first step is please have some self-compassion. I meet parents every day that beat themselves up regularly for the way that they parent. And these are parents that are devoted and loving to their kids, right? So please, let's be a little bit kinder and easier to ourselves. And the next thing I really, really would love parents to focus on is think of yourself as Yoda, okay? You are a Jedi knight. Yes, you're Yoda. And Jedi Knights have the force within them. These are our own strengths. These are things that we've cultivated over years. And when your child is doing something where you're feeling reactive, like you just that scream, that growl is coming out, yeah. take a moment to pause and channel Yoda. Ask yourself, what would Yoda do, right? <laughs> Yoda was a mindfulness master. He can call him a Jedi Knight. That's fine. I love Star Wars. But he was a mindfulness master. He would bring himself into the moment, and instead of reacting, he would respond. And there's a big difference between a reaction and a response. A response is something that's strategic, is a response is something that's thoughtful. And I think if you have a list of these superpowers at hand, that you can channel Yoda at any time. You dig into your force, your own strengths, and then you guide your child. Hmm. And you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. You're going to make mistakes. Skywalker made a million mistakes. Right. right? He crashed his yeah. his X-wing into the swamp for heaven's sakes, and Yoda had to bail him out. Come on, he almost killed his dad. Not to get technical, <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's a bad. That's a that's a super uh, strong-willed child. Luke was. That's a super strong-willed child. That's right. As we wrap it up, what would you say? I always ask for the one thing. What's the one thing that makes the biggest difference when it comes to managing effectively leading our strong-willed child? Remember, they are their own spirit walking their own path, and you are their guide. Mm. That's profound, isn't it? They, they're their own spirit, walking their own path, and you're just there to be the guide. That's right. That's good. Good stuff. Rini Jane, thanks so much for your great insight, and uh, appreciate the, the, uh, the time you were willing to give us. Thank you so much, Matt. It was a pleasure and an honor. You bet. Everybody, go check out the website, reneejane.com, spelled R-E-N-E-E-J-A-I-N.com, reneejane.com, and you can get more information about her books and all of her services she offers there. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking uh, about Pokemon Go. It's taking over the world, folks. This is where we need Yoda to get us through the Pokemon Go craze. Stick with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Is your spouse, uh, you know, 
really active in some sport, some hobby, whatever it is, and you feel like it's taking them away from you and your marriage, hobbies, they really can, uh, you know, be beneficial and help us to feel young and vibrant, to connect to our passions. It might even keep us thinking uh, in a healthier way. But sometimes they also can end up stealing your time, your attention, your focus. Many times I'll see couples that'll come in and see me and they'll, they'll talk about how they have fallen out of love. And every time I hear a couple arguing that they have fallen out of love, I, I usually think, well, okay, they probably have actually fallen into something else. I'm not sure I believe that people fall out of love. I think they just fall into a passion somewhere else, doing something else, and it's really simple to do. I mean, imagine when you're first married, you're first in love, life is life is great, tons of chemistry, everything about your spouse you think is cute, it's fantastic, it's wonderful. And meanwhile, um, it, it was easy too, right? Love was easy when you're first in love. It gets harder as time goes on. You, uh, you know, life gets more stressful, expenses go up, more children maybe, but these problems end up having to be dealt with. We have to learn to communicate. So as the relationship gets more complicated, many of us might actually turn away from the relationship to a hobby, to something else where we can escape, where we can get away from the the the, the difficulty. And I see it all the time. I had a client that just started riding um, bicycles and became a really good cyclist, started joining teams, started traveling with his team every Saturday, and then he'd have to train for hours. And it became an obsession. Now, you would think it would be wonderful because he's he's losing weight. He's staying in shape. He has tons of passion. He's excited about something, except for the fact that he was no longer as active in parenting. He was no longer there for dates. And he could only talk about his hobby. He couldn't relate to his family. He couldn't relate to other things. So hobbies, do they get in the way of you and your marriage? And if so, is it starting to to really frustrate you? One of the reasons why I've, um, I wanted to talk about this today is because I have seen marriages die be simply because of one partner's hobby. And um, I want to give you some tools, some ideas today on how to go about combating your partner's hobby. I mean, you can hate it all you want, but for some reason, they're doing it. They're choosing it. And there, there's obviously power if we could actually connect on the hobby. So I would suggest one of the greatest goals you could have in a marriage is some shared hobbies, some things that you love to do together. When my wife and I were first married, we played tennis a lot all through high school. We played tennis. We don't ever make time for tennis anymore. And yet it was something that we used to connect on. It was something that used to keep us uh, motivated. It was something that used to keep us active and together. And yet we don't even do it. So instead of letting these hobbies divide us, and instead of my wife being frustrated by me liking, you know, whatever Netflix, or me frustrated by her because she always wants to go on walks, how can we go find 
It's kind of the the common ground, the shared ground when it comes to our hobbies. One of the first rules I'm going to give you is we need to look at the distraction um, and find out what is so attractive about it. Find the attraction in your partner's distraction. One of the number one ways I've ever found to um, to probably value something you don't necessarily like just inherently is to understand it better. Why would your husband love fishing five hours a night until midnight or one or two in the morning? Why would they like that? That's crazy. You can hate it all you want or you can go try to just have a conversation and understand what is it about fishing that is so valuable for you? Why are you so excited? You might even want to go with them and figure out what is it about this. And I bet you the more information you gather, don't just make it about fishing. What is it about standing in a river? And you might be able to see maybe the beauty of the river. You might be able to see that your your husband is motivated by the challenge of trying to find the fish, of trying to choose the right bait or lure, or trying to do the right technique with a fly rod, or trying to um, just just that moment of when the the fish is uh, the fish hits and they get a reel it in. What is it that motivates your spouse to be so into doing family history or genealogy or writing a, uh, you know writing a book? What is it about what they're doing? Because you don't have to love what they're doing, but if they're going to be spending a lot of time and energy doing it, you really might want to understand it. And I found the more I understand what my wife is doing, the more I uh, I appreciate it. My wife has started a blog that um, it's a really uh, – it's an interesting thing because it takes time. And I personally would love her writing other things for me and with me. And yet the blog um, I'm noticing is being used by my wife to create a catharsis where she can deal with some of her other stresses of life. Now, when I don't read the blog, when I'm not up to date on the blog and I and I haven't cared about the blog, then to me it's just an annoyance. But when I understand the catharsis and I can see how much my wife is being able to be healed by writing her blog, then it makes me feel like, okay, I can tolerate this. This is good. So one of the first things I would say about your spouse's hobby, even if it irritates you to no end, Try to understand where it's coming from. They're not doing it to just hate you. They have a passion. They're going through something maybe in their life where they're trying to find a healthy way to handle it. So help them handle it. Now, if you are the one with a hobby that's taking a lot of time and energy, you got to be real. Is it is it a hobby that's impacting? Is it impeding a healthy relationship? Are you doing it too much? 70% of divorces are filed by women. And so when they come into my office, invariably they're kind of like done. They've been trying to work on this marriage for years. And a lot of times the guys are like, what? It's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal because you golf three times a week. And then you tell us we don't have money to go on a vacation, but you're paying $800 a month golfing. It's impacting us. And your friends are driving me crazy when it comes to this. So also you need to ask yourself, 
Is your hobby impeding? Is it impacting? What would, if I took your hobby and presented the data about how much time you spend coaching your kids' sports, is it impeding on a healthy marriage? Would 9 out of 10 dentists agree (laughs) that it is impacting a healthy marriage? I want you to think about that because to just go be actively involved in your passion, it does not equate to a happy marriage. So don't assume just because you are passionate and loving your passion, don't assume your marriage is going to work or it's even going to be tolerated. If you want your marriage to work, you're going to need to make your marriage your passion. You're going to need to make your marriage your hobby. Well, marriages shouldn't be that difficult. Marriage should be more natural. I hear people tell me that all the time. And every time they tell me that, I think, well, okay, more natural like childbirth? Yeah, okay. Yeah, nothing more natural than childbirth. But not easy. And not always so natural. Really painful. If you want your marriage to work, then we want to make the marriage part of the hobby. We might also want to understand why our partner does what they do and don't just take offense and be offended by it. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant Historically, we'd say you got to marry. You got to marry the man. Marry the man that you know makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here, and then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is, it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles. So. It's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or you know things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant – one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one-on-one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What What is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's, these are all important parts of the decision. 
And there are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father what are the what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out? So, you know, it used to make more sense. And I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian supported cultures and environments because you had a tight-knit group maybe more around you. But in inner city, difficult, financially strained situations, it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, And if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage um, if, if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer, it, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, th- there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that Um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But <laughs> some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction. But it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, 
Uh, let's do one more and then we'll take a break. Um, differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship, just like, you know, uh, potential I- infections and issues in our environment are better for your Im- for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. Another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage. Um, We've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex, less (laughs) sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex. And they're actually having better sex, as they would rate it, than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are, uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said that of the singles, um, women who were ages between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's, you know, pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, Another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's, It's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things. That is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, Many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researchers said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. The strengths become the weaknesses. So uh, over evolution of the ma- of the body... We, we needed certain traits to survive, and the body learned. And, you know, if you were able to survive long enough to procreate and have children, those genes could be handed down. And now look at the curveball we've got because we were able to run and sweat and, you know, rehydrate. Our body started craving salts and water and fluids. Now all of a sudden that 
has turned into, hey, let's go get some fries and a Diet Coke. <laughs> Not good. Or fries and a Coke. And now all of a sudden your brain loves the sugar because it wants as much sugar on board as it can get. Your brain loves the salt. And now we have to deal with it. It used to save our lives and now we don't need to chase an animal and run and sweat and perspire for hours. So um, how do we handle it now? Do you know how many times I've had people say, well, I mean, I know I've got this physical problem. I mean, I know it. I know I've been anxious and depressed my entire life. I know it. But I don't want to get medicine. I don't want it. But what you're battling isn't just a weakness. You're battling evolutionary genes that are in you that have made you be a really uh, maybe tense, anxious person so you wouldn't get you know, snuck up on by a wild animal or a predator. You have that worry. That's in you. That's not going away. And so as the good doctor told us, you can either regulate it away, you know, by having more regulation on what we can do, what we can't do, more regulation on our mental health industries, or we could also just, I guess, use behavior change which I have a lot of people want to get over anxiety, but they don't know how and they don't get therapy and they don't read books about it. Or eventually you're going to need to let science in. Somehow we need to break down a little bit, I think, of the belief that science is against us instead of science maybe there to be the valuable bridge to, to bridge our, our past and our future. I mean, and a lot of the people are God-fearing people that, you know, they don't, they don't think they need medicine and drugs to fix something. But God also gave you science, right? He also gave you, you know, insight, the ability to learn and to read and to think. He gave you choice and agency. So if we're going to, you know, invoke God into the argument about how we handle our evolution and our realities, then let's involve him in everything. There are scientists that are deeply prompted and moved by a God. So let's make choices and let's not do it at the expense of our health. Interesting stuff, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us, folks. More fun in just a few minutes. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Expectations play a huge role in success. You may expect success for your business group or your family, maybe even your political party. Uh, but unless they believe it, too, you won't get very far. Here to show us how to teach your team to expect success is leadership and executive coach Christina Curtis. Christina, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much. Good to have you. And you also, uh, you're a blogger on um, Psychology Today. You have a blog there, Stop Dreaming and Start Doing. I do, yeah. And I also write for Harvard Business Review. I'm, uh, I love the passion of writing, and I continue to do it because it allows me to stay tapped into the research that's out there. It's been fun. That's right. You know, I love it, too, because it keeps you up to date and, and forces you to keep being creative and dancing. We, say, we call it dancing like a monkey. Hey, talk to us, Christina, about um, 
teams. I mean, I, I, a lot of times we think you're the leader, so people just do what you say. And we're seeing this in our political world where we have leaders that are they somehow have reached the apex of the party. And yet they have a lot of people that don't want to follow them. Yeah, and that comes back to uh, to vision, right? The key to setting a vision is to really start start the conversation as a leader uh, from where the people are standing rather than where you're standing as their leader. So what do I mean by that? I mean, what's their vantage point? Uh, what are they seeing from where they're sitting right now? Uh, are you talking about something that's relevant and exciting to them in the moment? Um, and how do you make it exciting enough so that it really becomes this, this positive flywheel that drives them forward long after you've left the room? Uh, and I, I find that the miss for leaders is we, we start from where we're standing and, and don't always take the time to look from the other side of the table. Right. I mean, and that that's I don't want it to all be about kind of the political world, but um, it's so in our face today. And I, and I look at it. You have to understand your people. Right. You got to know where they're coming from. Yeah. And I think the challenge politically is there's so many different different vantage points right. uh, that these leaders are talking to. And you got to know where you're going. So you have to have your vision. You have to know where they are. And then somehow you build a bridge. You build a bridge. So you can get all fired up about the finish line. But if you forget to start where they are, uh, you're going to miss the mark. So the first thing, of course, is where are they standing from? What's their vantage point? What are they seeing? And then the second thing that comes to mind is this importance of reiterating and reinforcing that vision uh, frequently. And I think that's a myth, too. People, I often work with CEOs who say, well, I, I, I've got my vision. It's here on my PowerPoint deck. I shared it three weeks ago or I shared it three years ago. And it's like, when are you sharing it again? When are you actually planting that seed in their imagination so that it grows when you're not there? Um, and that's the magic to me, right, of all this is your vision can become so much more than you ever imagined when other people are tending to it and fostering, fostering it and expanding it. And they can't do that unless you actually plug it into their imagination by repeating it and reinforcing it. And we know that from a memory standpoint. If you say something once, they're less likely to remember it. If you say it multiple times, it's more likely to take seed and actually grow. Uh, and so that's the most important thing for me. When I think about visioning and I think about leadership, paint the picture from where they start. Uh, and where they're starting, and then reiterate and reinforce it frequently. So if, if I'm a father and we are, we want our kids to, you know, be leaders and we want them to excel and be successful, um, mm. if I'm going to create that vision with them, I mean, I, it's one thing for me to say that to them, but I have to really paint the picture with them and from them and have them help me paint the vision Right. And then and then the big thing you're saying, too, is make sure the narrative constantly is tying back to that vision. So every time we have a chance to, you know, show success, you know, or when we have a success, we tie that success back to the vision narrative. Yeah, the kid piece of it is really interesting to me. I'm a mom of two. I've got a a nine and seven year old. And being a leadership coach, you hear a lot of this stuff. Yeah, right. Uh, what I found, my, looking at my personality types of my children, one of them is very much a different personality type and focuses on different things than I do. And I kept talking about, I kept coming from my position, you got this, this is, you're, you're excelling, this is your area of focus. And I didn't realize where he was coming from was that mistakes were bad. And anytime he would go to school and make a mistake, in fact, just the other day, he took this test and he got 14 out of 15 and he came home crying and he said, Mom, I can't believe I screwed that up. 
And then I realized, you know, it's a light bulb moment of, wait a second, I'm not talking about what's relevant and interesting and exciting for this child right now. Hmm. I'm talking about what's exciting for me. And what's relevant to this child right now is overcoming this hurdle of mistakes are bad. And that the vision of success, you can't get there without, without starting from where he is. And we actually ended up, he came up with the idea. We talked about all these famous people and all the mistakes they made, and he posted it. Um, he put <laughs> it all over his wall uh, just as a reminder. And he said, Mom, I can get through this, but I need, I, he needs to remember. He's, um, he's just nine years old, and he's learning that stuff young. But, yeah, reiterating, reinforcing, and also starting again, it just loops back into the same cycle. But, and keeping our ears open, because it sounds like we, we become deaf to others' issues because our issues are so much more pressing. So I'm more worried about, don't worry about the one miss on the test out of 15. Don't worry about that. But you're saying, I've got to hear where he is, go live there with him for a bit, explore it, and out of there, we together would create something better. Yeah, and you have to give a space for it. What you're talking, it's it's this, I see this a lot in teams uh, and parenting, but I see this a lot in the workplace where, where when you don't listen long enough, uh, A, someone stops sharing. They stop sharing what their point of view is because they don't think you care about it. Uh, they've told you enough times, and if you're not listening and reiterating it back to them, they think, ah, it didn't land. Hmm. And then they actually carry it with them for decades, and, and it becomes a massive hurdle, right? I, I work with a lot of people of different generations, and uh, the ones to me that are the most exciting are the 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds who are these very experienced um, profoundly beautiful people who have one hurdle left that they really want to overcome or, or five hurdles left that they really want to overcome, and it's having someone listen to it and, and shift it for them that they can move past it. I just went through that last week with, with a C-level um, individual who had something from when he was just a kid, and he, nobody had listened to his concern. No one listened to his vantage point, and he kept that filter through his whole life, uh, and we're now shifting it. So, so listening is, as a leader, is a most important skill you could ever have. I mean, I guess that's the only way you can adjust the ship, right? And is you got to get the feedback. There's got to be some feedback to you that you're off course and or it's that the others aren't rowing with you or or pushing for you. And I guess the only way to do that is listening. Yeah, where people get tripped up is, well, if I listen and I disagree with their point, then I shouldn't have listened in the first place. I hear people say that a lot, right? And the reality is, People, as long as they feel valued and heard, are okay to keep following you as a leader if you have a different opinion. If you can just, they, they need to feel valued, they need to feel heard. It doesn't mean they're going to uh, jump ship if you have a disagreement. You can agree to disagree on certain issues, and hierarchy eventually comes into play. It's like my kids, right, doing their homework. Um, eventually they, even if they're fighting me on it, they'll eventually follow through because they know it's the right thing, but they sometimes just need to vent about how frustrating it is for them. Right. It's, um, I guess, too, as a leader, if if you don't hear a lot of people giving you their feedback, um, it might be that they don't think you'll listen or that you don't listen or that that type of feedback's not a part of your vision at all. Right. And part of that comes from a fear of of a fear of looking like you're a weak leader. I hear a lot of people say, uh, if I take accountability for this mistake or if I get this piece of feedback, it's, it's highlighting my weaknesses. Right. And the strongest leaders that I work with in the U.S. today, the really, the Fortune 100 leaders out there, I even saw one of them stand in front of 10,000 people and own the mistake he had made the day before because for him, he wanted to show vulnerability so that they would say, hey, here's some other feedback. 
let me let me share this with you. Um, this will help you because you'll have more insight and info on on how to drive this forward. Uh, but vulnerability and, and openness to feedback is critical. Mm. We um, again, we're speaking with Christina Curtis about an article. She wrote, teach your team to expect success. As She has a blog on Psychology Today, Stop Dreaming, Start Doing. We will take a break, come back, continue this discussion, and uh, find out more about uh, how we can be better leaders and share our vision with others. Stick with us, folks. We're helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Townsend Show. You ever been in charge of a team and you needed to get them motivated? You needed them to start believing that they could be successful and moving that team forward? Well, joining us today is Christina Curtis. She is a uh, a leadership and executive coach based in Colorado. She also writes on Psychology Today, um, has a blog there, Stop Dreaming, Start Doing. Today, she's been teaching us some of the skills, some of the tools to help us to... uh, to create uh, success with our teams, and we appreciate you being here again. Christina Curtis, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Talk to us about, uh, you so far mentioned we've got to get a vision, we've got to know where we want to take the team. Then we have to reframe the team's narrative, um, and by reframing it, I guess you're constantly saying, go, go where they are, listen to what they're saying, and then take what you're hearing and reframe it back to the goal, the vision. Yeah, the reframing the narrative, it becomes critical when someone, any goal that's worth achieving is likely going to have some bumps along the road. We all know that. Right. Uh, we, don't, we don't envision that when we start setting the goal, but it's the reality. And every time you hit a bump, you have to reframe that narrative because if someone's out there and they fail to achieve the results they're looking for, my experience has been, it can almost trigger like a, a spiral of negative energy that becomes like an anchor. And, and that anchor can hold them from progressing or from trying out again or uh, from shifting out of a negative state. So the job as a leader is really to free them from that dead weight and, and take the negative experience and tell it like, rather than a negative story, a positive story. And, and Priya Nant, who's the head of global vendor operations at Google, had said to me in her interview uh, when I was writing this article, which I, th- I thought was really profound, sometimes team members see a dead end when it's a really just a sharp turn in the road. Hmm. Um, and I love that, right? Because you, you get there, we've all felt that feeling where we're like, oh, I blew it. Yeah. At the end of the road. And, and in fact, it's not. Yeah, it's in just. Fact, in fact, it's part of the process. Yeah, it's just a right angle. It's, it's, and I guess that helps us because it, it's a way to keep hope alive. Because, yeah, we might awfulize it, it seems like. We would turn it into a horrible story um, that, would, that would then demoralize us. Which is way worse at night when no one's around, right? It's always, right. It's always worse when the lights go out and you sit lying there in bed ruminating about it. And, uh, and our job as leaders is to recognize human beings are naturally hardwired to over-amplify the negatives. And it's, it's from evolutionary psychology and the fact that we always are looking out for threats. And, and the more you can highlight what's working and reframe their negative thought patterns in a positive way, the more you're going to be able to propel them and motivate them to have the energy to drive after that goal and say, oh, yeah, it's not a dead end. Oh, wait, I see what's around the corner. Let's keep going. Well, and that, that 
tendency or propensity toward negativity also makes it so you never see things that are working. Another point you bring up in your article is shine the light on what's working because if you focus on what's working, you can at least see what's working and 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 use those things that work and maybe use those to fix the things that don't. Yeah, and the most successful people that I work with, the top CEOs, always say nothing is always working. If I look at my system right now, my company right now, what's what's clear is that there are breakdowns that happen on an hourly basis. And if I highlight those to the team and only highlight those to the team, it's going to demoralize everyone and we'll think, oh, we failed, versus shining light on the aspects that are working. And, yep, we got a bump over here. Let's navigate our way through it. But, man, are we, when it comes to the trajectory of the business over the course of the year or over the course of the past few days, whatever it might be, we're nailing this. Let's talk about that. Yeah. And I guess so that that would be great on any family meeting and, and any post-mortem on any family uh, or any business issue. When you sit down as a team, make sure you can see a lot of the good. Don't just fix the broken. Oh, especially personal relationships. All of this stuff is true in any aspect, in any arena of your life. And I, I look at my family, for instance, when you think about um, marriage and, and the balance that you need to constantly achieve um, to keep everybody in the home happy, you don't want to say to your partner every day, here are the three things you did wrong. And yet that's our tendency, right? It's, oh, right. you forgot to take the garbage out. Oh, you forgot to do this. Instead of, hey, thanks for doing that. I noticed you did this. Thank you so much. And I've, the five-to-one ratio is often talked about um, in Gottman's research where the happiest of marriages and the happiest of teams have an equation of five-to-one positive interaction to negative interaction. And there's a reason for that. When you say more and more positive things to someone, it builds trust. They feel like you've got their best interests in mind. And then the one negative doesn't completely throw off the equilibrium. Yeah. Yeah, and, and um, it's the positive. It, it doesn't. I always have just seen it's the inverse of the negative. So you can sometimes fix the negative by just focusing on the positive. The the positive right. itself is the opposite of. So we we never go out to dinner. We went out to dinner and had a great night tonight. That's telling each other that this is working. This is what we need to keep doing. Or in a week, we're going to be talking about how we never go out to dinner. Right, and those words, never and always, are just really dangerous in any relationship. You never do this, you never do that, and they think, well, I did that. Yesterday. Um, right? <laughs> right. So whenever whenever the, the never always, those are such heavy words. And especially with children, I find, uh, when I, I have two kids, so with my first one, you don't really think about the balance as much. It's not a conscious it's not a conscious thought when I wake up in the morning to say, make sure I do five to one, right? I don't think that when right. I just wake up and I go through my day. And then I look over and I thought, oh, my God, that kid has so much weight that I just put on them because I was so focused on what wasn't working. Or my husband is leaving for work so heavy because of all of that stuff. So I find it's really a thought process in the morning to wake up and say, how do I consciously have a positive effect on people's motivation and lives today? And, and, and yeah, and make a, a conscious effort. Talk about another point you bring up in your article is about give your team members more control. Turn it over to them. Let them own and have control over this. What's the psychology behind that? I see that it works. Um, I, I see a lot of power there. Um, but a lot of times you feel like I can't turn it over because they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> right, or I could do it better myself. Uh, I, 
this is a very difficult thing. And I, I remember John Corley, who is um, president of Channel Partner Operations for Xerox, said to me, it takes great courage, great courage to empower your team. And it really does. Where it, where it, and why it works is because people will then feel like they, like they have control over something. When, when someone feels like they have ownership or control over something, they're going to work harder at driving results. Yeah. Versus it being someone else's to do, someone else's task. And uh, and where we also fall short on this one in the work workplace is you'll say, okay, Joe, this is your project. I'm going to chunk this off for you. You go do it. And then Joe goes and does all this great work. And then the leader at the end takes the data and presents it himself or herself to to the board or to whoever. Giving that person ownership from beginning to end would be a much more powerful thing. Helping right. them feel like it's theirs. Um, it, it's it's incredibly powerful. The results you can get from someone when you do that. And again, I guess that's also creates some honesty. It, it probably creates a sense that I can trust you as my leader. Absolutely. And vice versa. It's a two-way street. I, uh, I find in coaching often with leaders, we'll have them rate their relationships on a scale of one to five, with each of the people that they work with. And in a family, you can do this too with, um, with an extended family. Uh, how well do I get along with this person? How strong is that relationship? Anything that gets a three out of five, meaning it's just mediocre or just meets expectation, a three out of five or below, we're not doing enough work there to build trust. And trust is the foundation for all empowerment. If you don't trust them or they don't trust you, you cannot hand things off freely because there will be a hiding of mistakes. There will be a lack of communication. There will be fear that they're going to get in trouble if something does drop and something always does. Yeah. Uh, so trust is critical. What would you say, and this is, I'm throwing a curve at you now, Christina. Um, uh, let's say that either party, the Trumps or, or, um, uh, the Clintons came in, sat and, and hired you and said, we need you to help us rebuild trust from our candidates. What, where would you begin? And, well, and, and how, how do you rebuild trust with a team that doesn't necessarily either trust your credibility, like your character, or doesn't trust your competency? It seems like to me one's got a character kind of issue, one's got a competency issue. Or both. I mean, they could have both issues, but it seems like that somehow this has to be rebuilt. What would you? How would you counsel them? Right, and and politics politics aside, if I just looked at the two leaders, yeah. For me, there is. We talked about this earlier in our in our call today. Vulnerability and taking accountability for where you make mistakes builds trust. Yeah, and I would start from there. Because the problem that's happening is when you feel, when you say you're right, I rarely hear people say, oh, my, argue that they're wrong. I was so wrong. I never hear people say that. But I often <laughs> hear people say, I'm right. And when you are right, you impose that someone else is wrong. Uh, and it creates a huge divide. It's, it, and I, my concern in politics is that um, there's, there's so much right that's making so many other people wrong. Um, and it's deteriorating relationships dramatically. So I would start from there. What what can you own? Where can you show more vulnerability? Where can you start pointing the finger or stop pointing the finger and blaming? Because um, we're all human. We're all American. We're all on the same team. Right. And that seems so counterproductive or counterintuitive in the middle of an election to start identifying where you made mistakes and where you were wrong, except in this case, it might actually, it would right. pay off Don't huge dividends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
It builds credibility. We're all human and we all trip up. And it's not so much the, the, the admittance of wrong as is being careful not to make other people wrong. Um, right. It's a very fine balance as a leader. In politics, it exacerbates this. But, um, but yeah, I would, take, I, would, I would start from a human standpoint where we're all on the same team for both parties. It's mm, great insight. What, um, as we wrap this up, Christina, what's the one thing uh, that you've, you've either talked about or you haven't mentioned yet? The one thing that if I'm a new team leader, I sit down with my team that I, I need to make sure I do this well and I need to do it right, right up front. And if I do, it'll, it'll pay a huge dividend down the road. The one thing, uh, well, if I look at the people that I work with who are most successful, the one thing they do is is let their guard down, show vulnerability, and, and come, at, come at the process from, I, I often think we judge ourselves by our, our intentions, we judge others by their actions, right? Yeah. So, so come in the room and just say, lay out your intentions, let them lay out your, their intentions, and get back to that one goal. Where are we headed? Let's create a strong foundation so that no matter what happens from here on out, we can come back to this, and we won't get torn apart. Mm. Good stuff. Good stuff. Again, uh, um, you know, we all need it, Christina. Leadership's everywhere from family to government uh, and everywhere in between. Christina Curtis is her name. You can find her if you go to um, stop, uh, if you go to Psychology Today and just look up her blog, which is titled Stop Dreaming, Start Doing. Uh, tons of information and research there. She coaches and works with executives. She also has a website, IgnitePerformanceConsulting.com. IgnitePerformanceConsulting.com. Thank you again, Christina. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, do a little Coach's Corner and a little uh, in, filling you in on some of the latest stories. Just an update, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger and lead a healthier life. We'll be right back. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you haven't learned this yet, apparently there's there are going to be people in your life. They're either, you know, they could be your children. They could be your, your spouse. Uh, in Ben's case, it could be a parole officer. But you're going to have somebody near and dear to you. And these people are going to be irritants, possibly. They also could be uh, help. They could be there to lift you, to make your life better. They can tear you down, (laughs) beat you up. But if you can't work with people, then what else are you going to be left with? Well, maybe a chicken. According to a a report we just got, uh, a French sailor has embarked on a journey around the world accompanied by his pet hen named Monique. Garrick Sudi. There's Monique right there. A 24-year-old from Brittany, France, has been traveling with his pet hen and chronicling... What'd you say, Monique? What'd you say, babe? Aw, cute little Monique. He's been chronicling their adventures since 2014... And, you know, for a minute he thought, maybe maybe I ought to get a cat. I'll just have a cat, and I'll bring a cat as my companion instead of Monique. But then he thought, you know, that's going to take a lot of work. 
So the hen was the ideal choice. It wouldn't work. I mean, it wouldn't take work. The hen would, you know, the hen would just be there to be his friend. So now they just sit on the boat, float around the world. She follows every. She follows him everywhere. She's like just this little pal. They just sit on the side of the boat. So, Monique, what do you think about the sunset, Monique? What do you think, babe? Mmm, yeah. That's really good. What should we have for dinner, Monique? Oh, eggs? <laughs> okay, Monique. You know, I guess when it comes down to it, uh, in Castaway, it's better than a ball. It beats a volleyball. Well, at least a Wilson. volleyball would, like, you'd be able to decide what it answers. Monique, does my bother? Does my mother irritate you? Monique, answer me. Don't make me wring your neck, Monique. Get over here, you little chick. Yeah, I think she'd drive me crazy. And do they? It seems like it'd have a hard thing. It'd be hard to like stay on the boat for that little bird, right? Because aren't boats a little slippery as you're walking along the sides? What does she grab onto her with her little? I think she uses her little legs. beak to like grab onto the rope in case she slips. Yeah, I bet you Monique's just learned to hold onto the rope. I bet you she could tie a great knot. Oh yeah, all those sailor knots. Man, all I need to do is shout Monique, and she will come to me. She's to sit on me, give me company. She's amazing. What would you choose out there in the Twitter sphere? What would you choose if you were going to take a pet around the world with you? What would you pick? A chicken? A hen? Personally, I'd want a horse. I've never had a horse. I bet a horse would be hard on a boat. Have you seen The Life of Pi? Yeah. I'd choose a tiger. Yeah, you'd be dead. Ah, uh, that kid didn't die. Well, you're not that kid. <laughs> not to be rude. I'm very good with cats. <laughs> Here, kitty, 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 kitty. When you think about it, folks, in the end, you either, you're going to have to learn to work with people or you're going to be left circle, circumnavigating the world with a hen. Nothing wrong with that. Don't want to dissuade anybody from uh, doing that people matter and so people's skills matter we probably in fact i believe strongly that that's one of the reasons you're here on this earth is to figure out yourself as you interact with others to not get caught up in like the peer pressure where you think you've got to do something for some other reason than your values suggest Instead, I think we're here to, to discern and figure out and become a, an agent that chooses how we're going to live. Do you believe that? Are you ever going to uh, be able to perfect dealing with people? I don't think so because every person you come across will be just a little bit different. But unless you want to spend the rest of your life on a boat or alone in your house – I mean, I get it. I'm somebody, I'm an introvert sometimes. I love to just be alone, except there's also times I want to go with people. I, I want to be with people. I want to hang out and learn and grow and change. So let's do what we can to start learning these skills on the personal level. Don't worry about everyone else learning them because they may not. But you in your life today can learn how to be a better team leader, how to be a better person, 
how to read people, how to listen, how to understand, how to manage your emotion, how to manage their emotion. So a little challenge for you as we end this coaching corner. What are you going to do? What's one thing that you can go make better today in your life by working better with people? What's one relationship you need to work on? And what's the most important thing you need to learn to manage that relationship more effectively? And then get on it. Go look up something on psychology today. Go to my website at matttownsend.com. Anywhere you can, gather the information you can, get the help. Just listen to the show for heaven's sakes. We'll get it. Stick with us. 